The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. And I'm Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall today and tomorrow. Leslie has some very well-earned time off. And if you recognize my voice, it's because you normally hear me in the guise of Talk Radio News Chief White House Correspondent bringing you all the hottest political news from Washington and around the nation. But today and tomorrow, I'm in for Leslie, and we have got some hot issues for you. We're going to start by talking about what may be, according to those who believe it, and they include some potentially of the nation's top politicians in Texas, a plan by the Pentagon to, well, take over Texas. Joined by Jamie McIntyre, national security correspondent for Al Jazeera America. Jamie, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Victor. I'm a, I'm a big fan. You know, what, what do they say in uh, talk radio? Long-time listener, first-time caller. First-time uh, that, caller, that yeah. Me. That's always yeah. a little worrying when you hear that, actually. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so what what is going on? Jade Helm 15 uh, seems to be a plan to do something in Arizona, Florida, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, New Mexico, um, and Utah starting on July the 15th. And uh, according to those who are worried about it, um, it's, it's uh, a plan to, to take over by the Pentagon. Well, I can tell you that this is what we would refer to as a routine military exercise, the kind of thing that goes on across the country all the time. But I think it's a really interesting phenomenon that people have looked at this, and they, they are not accepting the, the routine face value explanation offered by the Pentagon and the local officials who've, who've briefed local community leaders about what this exercise is all about. And it involves special forces, and uh, they set up mock scenarios of, uh, you know, fictitious countries uh, that they're going to practice their, you know, uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures on. But it really underscores this idea that there's, um, among many Americans, a real deep distrust of the government and uh, an, an unwillingness to sort of accept things at face value and, um, and, a, and a deep suspicion that is fed by, uh, by these kinds of, you know, conspiracy theories. And, you know, when I say conspiracy theories, I, I don't necessarily mean that in a pejorative way because um, there are real conspiracies uh, you know, in our government, one of the reasons that people distrust government so much is that there's a history of the government not always telling the truth. I mean, we just marked the Vietnam War anniversary, the end of the of the war, which which was in many ways started and escalated based on the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which turned out to be essentially a lie by the government. So it's not irrational to think that the government uh, is going to lie from time to time and do things that uh, it doesn't admit to. But this has sort of gone off the scale. 
scale uh, kind of crazy in uh, the way that uh, it's been embraced by some mainstream politicians uh, as who are at, who are very serious about asking questions about why they don't believe that uh, the military, one of the most trusted institutions in our country, is on the up and up when they say all they're doing here is conducting a routine military exercise. Well, this is what's I think fascinating about this because I understand where you might have Senator Ted Cruz, Representative Louis Gohmert of Texas, who today went totally off with one of the weirdest political statements I've ever read in my life, which we'll get into in a minute, saying that they don't trust President Obama because they don't trust President Obama when he breathes in and out. But the Pentagon generally is trusted. And you've got Army Rangers, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, Special Ops Forces. These are trusted guys, even by conspiracy theorists. But this time, they're not trusting them. And they also think they're in collusion with Walmart. I mean, what's up with that? Well, so there's some Walmart stores that apparently are closed in Texas that are being renovated. And one of the conspiracy theories that has circulated around that these are actually being converted into detention centers so that when uh, the U.S. government declares martial law in Texas and takes over, uh, that they have a place to round up people and take their weapons and, and hold them. Um, you know, it seems irrational on one level and it it is a very interesting phenomenon when i i um i wrote my master's thesis on this idea of conspiracy theories because i was involved in in some tangential way in the conspiracy theories surrounding the september 11th attacks on the pentagon and the large number of people and it is a large number of people who don't believe a plane hit the pentagon on september 11th and i was fascinated by this because over the years as i engaged with some of the folks and i was at the Pentagon on September 11th when the plane hit. Um, you know, I expected to, to be dealing with some really sort of crazy, irrational people, and that wasn't the case. Most of the people I dealt with who believed these alternate narratives uh, were actually very smart people. And I think, you know, you take say, take Senator Cruz, or, and I don't think he actually believes that there's a conspiracy here, but he has asked questions about it. But you take some of these people, these are not, you know, unintelligent people, but yet they believe things that sort of go well beyond what the facts and the evidence would actually seem to indicate. And it's a very interesting phenomenon, and it gets to the core, uh, some of the core things about why we believe what it is we believe. And we, we tend to think that we believe things because the facts and evidence support them. But in fact, a lot of what we believe, um, you know, from trivial things to really important things, often has to do with our, um, our emotional attachment to those beliefs. And it's just that there's a lot of, been a lot of research done in this, and this is a classic example of a conspiracy theory that is being embraced by some um, well-meaning and pretty smart people uh, and whose suspicions in some areas of life may be well-founded, but it's gone from, the, from a healthy skepticism of what the government says into sort of an unhealthy cynicism um, that believes that everything that's going on has a nefarious and underhanded purpose. Uh, and it's in many ways sort of indicative of what's going on in our information age today, where we're, we're so flooded with information, sometimes it's really hard to sort out what it is, is that, that's really based in fact and what it is just sort of wild, off-the-charts speculation. Well, it also feeds into what you already believe and what you're willing to believe. And if you already believe, for example, that this president may be 
other than American, may have other than America's best interests at heart, it becomes easy to believe, as Representative Louis Gohmert says in his statement today, once I observed the map depicting hostile, permissive, and uncertain states and locations, I was rather appalled that the hostile areas amazingly have a Republican majority, cling to their guns and religion, and believe in the sanctity of the United States Constitution. Well, I mean, that's clearly a reference to President Obama being behind this. Well, so what he's taking there is he's taking a map in which they, uh, in which the military sets up a you know a mock scenario and they designate some places as, uh, you know, hostile and some places as permissive for the purposes of their exercise. And it's really just sort of random. Often, by the way, when they do these exercises, they make up the names of uh, countries that don't exist because they don't want anybody saying, for instance, that, that the U.S. is wargaming to invade North Korea. So they'll set up a, a you know, a, a fake country that may be called something like, you know, Baluchistan or something and, and have their scenario around that. And so what he's looking at is this map uh, where they have set out sort of, you know, a notional ideas of fictitious areas and designated them for the purposes of the exercise. And he's actually uh, looking at it as if somebody has actually designated Texas as hostile territory. And, you know, I have to say that looking at the way this has been uh, the reaction on social media and, and covering the Pentagon and the military for as many years as I have, I have a lot of Facebook acquaintances, I won't call them friends, who uh, who I see their comments on social media, and you know I think there's a there's a feeling that there's a that they're insulted by the fact that, so, that a lot of people seem to be taking this idea seriously that the U.S. military and special forces and as you said Green Berets and Navy SEALs would somehow be involved in an underhanded secret covert scheme to you know take over part of the United States as if we don't already have it as part of the United States and somehow declare martial law or it it just it I, they, a lot of them find it really insulting. So here's the other phenomenon. Why don't we hear from them? I mean, we had the Pentagon spokesman, Army Colonel Steve Warren, being put in a position yesterday of having to say that Operation Jade Helm poses no threat to any American civil liberties and actually have to say that Operation Jade Helm is being conducted by Americans, by specifically American Special Forces personnel, which is kind of bizarre that he would actually have to say that. But why don't we hear from the people who are outraged by the outraged? Yeah, and just as an aside, by the way, that was me asking General uh, Colonel Warren yesterday about that, so I would have him on the record, uh, give him a chance to to respond to that. But I think the the larger point is why people why people don't step up is initially when they hear something like this, they say, "Oh, that that's just so crazy, we don't even have to deal with that." And they don't really think it's going to take hold as an actual belief. And then as a few days goes by, and they realize that some people are actually taking this seriously, and I have to say, I I experience the same thing with the conspiracy theories about uh, September 11th. When I first heard that people didn't believe that a plane hit the Pentagon, I, I didn't feel like, I felt like, well, that's just a very small fringe number of people. Obviously, all the evidence indicates a plane at the Pentagon, and people were on the plane, and it took off. And you know, any rational person would, would, would believe that this plane was hijacked and, and flown into the Pentagon. And I, and I didn't engage with a lot of these people initially, um, and then I realized that it wasn't just a few people that believed that, but 
quite a few, many Americans, even more people overseas. Um, and I begin, that's, that's when I began to sort of engage with some of them. That's what ultimately led me to, to write my master's thesis, which, by the way, was called uh, the – because you have to have a – you know, you have to have a, a – um, uh, you know, a a, um, a name for your thesis that uh, is academic and sounding. So it was called uh, Elements of Disbelief, A Case Study of 9-11 Truthers and the Persistence of Misinformation in the Digital Age. Wow. And if I ever uh, write this and turn it into a book, uh, it'll probably be something more like um, Stuck on Stupid, Why Smart People Believe Dumb Things. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that would be... That would, that's the that one I like. The, that's the one I'm going to read. Better, yes. Yeah, that's the one I'm going to read. When we continue, I would like to talk about when you talk to these people, why, if you were able to get out of them, why it is they think that they believe these things, and if they're open to persuasion otherwise. Stay with us. We're talking with Jamie McIntyre, National Security Correspondent of Al Jazeera America. I'm Victoria Jones. In for Leslie Marshall today. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall on the Leslie Marshall Show today. We're talking about why it is that Americans, some of them, feel that they need to have their civil liberties protected from involvement by the U.S. military. In this case, a massive summertime military exercise called Jade Helm 15. And uh, it's Texas that's actually freaking out about it. Um, and the Pentagon yesterday dismissed as wild speculation an Internet-fueled claim that Jade Helm 15 for special ops commandos is a covert op by President Obama to take over Texas. My guest is Jamie McIntyre, national security correspondent for Al Jazeera America. Jamie, when you have talked to people who are convinced of conspiracy theories, whether this or uh, the plane not flying into the Pentagon, which we've talked about, have you found them open to persuasion? For example, you were in the Pentagon. You know a plane flew in there on September the 11th. Are they open to persuasion? Well, this, I think, is one of the really interesting things. So I, I thought, and I prob probably you feel the same way, and as journalists we tend to think this way, that if somebody believes something that, that we think is demonstrably untrue, um, that, that it's because maybe they don't have all the facts, or maybe, maybe we think they're not smart enough to, to know what all the facts mean or something. But we, you, you tend to think that if, if you presented more facts, uh, unassailable facts, that people would, in fact, change their mind. And what I discovered in the time that I've, in all the people I've engaged with uh, over this question about whether a plane hit the Pentagon, is um, I've laid out the case um, for what I think is just ba basically unassailable, all evidence pointing to the plane hitting the Pentagon. And, and in fact, 
you know, if it didn't hit the Pentagon, what happened to the plane? But, you know, we go through it all. And in the, in the years that I've done this, I've never changed a single mind, which gets to this point. Do facts matter in what we believe? Um, you know, and, there's, and the fact of the matter is they, they have little impact on what we believe. We believe things for all kinds of reasons, but not usually because we've lined up all the facts on one side and all the others and, and weighed the various evidence and come to a conclusion like a jury might in a murder trial. Uh, we tend to believe things for all kinds of reasons. And you would also think that, for instance, if... If, for instance, there's a belief that this is really a covert uh, secret operation to subvert civil liberties in Texas, and if it turns out that over time that's not what happens, you might think, well, okay, somebody might change their belief. They might think, oh, well, maybe that wasn't so bad after all. But what the research shows is that people tend to adjust their beliefs to um, they adjust the rationale for what they believe to what has actually happened. It's called, you know, cognitive dissonance. So instead of concluding that well, maybe this wasn't a conspiracy. They can conclude that well, the, con the conspiracy was thwarted, or uh, you know that the it was what it was. But now uh, we were able to succeed in in, in beating it back, and it, it means that a lot of these beliefs just stay uh, very persistent for a very very long time. People don't like to for one thing, they don't like to admit that they were wrong about something. There's a natural we all we all have this tendency not to admit that we were wrong about things. Um, often we don't even have time to look at all the facts. You know, if you had to fact check every every belief that you had, that's all you would do. So we take a lot of things on faith. We are influenced by other people that we trust, people like you on the radio, for instance. So there's a whole range of reasons about why we believe things. And a lot of it, frankly, if you examine it, is not entirely rational. We have a lot of sort of irrational thinking and logic errors that we make in our everyday life. Some of them are ju we just do because it's it just if we had to think everything through, it would be impossible. So we rely on instinct and um, for a lot of things. But it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating subject, particularly for journalists or communicators or people who are trying to, um, you know, inform the public to understand why people believe things and what does actually change their mind, because m more facts tend not to. In fact, there's something that's well documented known as the backfire effect. Whereas no, you can't tell me about it. It's going to have to remain a mystery because yeah. we're out. We're okay. unfortunately out of time. But bottom line is when the Pentagon does not take over Texas, these people will think that they thwarted an effort by the Pentagon. Yeah, successfully, yes. Successfully, they thwarted yes. the Pentagon. Well, then they should be very proud. Jamie McIntyre, thank you so much. You are quite welcome. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. We will continue. Victoria Jones here in for Leslie Marshall this afternoon. Stay with us. Leslie Marshall. Real people. Real life. Real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. I'm Victoria Jones, in for Leslie Marshall today, and I will be in for Leslie tomorrow as she is taking some very well-earned time off. We're talking politics now, pure politics, G-O-P, and Democrats too, but they're actually not as interesting. I'll tell you why. There just aren't as many of them, and they're just a little bit blah. 
they like not to be blah, but right now they're kind of blah. But we will get to them, and I'm probably saying something that's heretical to this audience. But if you didn't want them to be blah, then you should get some more exciting candidates. Uh, because it's the Republicans who've got the kind of the kind of funky ones. And it's got really, really crowded in the race this week. Not as crowded as it's going to get. So to talk about it with me, I'm joined by John Nichols, pioneering political blogger. He's written The Beat since 1999. And he writes about politics for The Nation magazine as its Washington correspondent. John, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. What's going on? Three in two days. I can't keep up. Well, they're starting to realize that uh, this thing is moving. And there's a lot of money to be raised. There's also a lot of grassroots work to be done, particularly in a state like Iowa. And so I I think there's just a sense that, that it's time to move. This is actually a very normal, very natural announcement period when you look at the schedule. Right, the way that you're going to start to have debates, uh, not that far off. Iowa. Oh, how are they going to fit them all on the stage when they've got 20? What are they going to do? I'm thinking like a classroom model where you have, uh, you know, like eight in front and eight behind. Who's going to be the sloucher in the back like Vladimir Putin? Well, I, I, I have to... Yes, that's Bobby Jindal. That's what I, I... You read my mind. I see him as the sloucher in the back, but who constantly has his hand up because he's basically a show-off. Well, it's also the problem of uh, there's... You know, in 2012, you know, we, we went through every candidate because Republicans desperately did not want to nominate Mitt Romney. So they entertained every possibility, you know, Herman Cain, even Newt Gingrich. But, you know, there's always some candidates that they never get to. Bobby Jindal is the candidate they'll never get to. And You really so, don't think so? You just, oh, oh not a Bobby. Chance. Not a chance. In, never, 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 never. And if they did, he's only one minute of serious examination away from being revealed as a disastrous governor of Louisiana. What about that exorcism? Yeah, well, that's what I'm, you know, it's, he, in many ways, he probably shouldn't want to be a contender. But the fact is, he's in the game, he's trying to make a play. I think Bobby Jindal, a former cabinet aide uh, some years back, is really running for a low-level cabinet position. Low and, level. Oh, you're so cruel. What, like ag? No, ag's good. You know, it's, I'm, not even, I'm thinking, you know, it's, it, I assume he could actually get a cabinet title, not assistant. But, you know, I'm talking, oh, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, guess, I guess ag probably is the zone. Maybe labor in a Republican labor. administration. Oh, in a Does Republican administration. That's mean. That doesn't count for much, does it? doesn't count for much, does it? No, agriculture is actually quite important, except agriculture never gets to go to the State of the Union. They're always the one left behind. Have you noticed that? They never get to go. What about Carly Fiorina? What's she in it for? Is it ego, or does she want a cabinet position, or does she want to be VP? Oh, that's a very – I think that's a better question. And uh, because I think there is some play there. Remember, the Republican Party – passionately believes in affirmative action. 
I mean, they, they're very, very strong for it, and uh, except for real people. Um, they love it. So ri- rich white women, you mean? What's that? You mean for rich white women? Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. They, they, well, they like it image-wise. I mean, there's a, an enthusiasm for it at the very top level. And so as a result, the arena serves an incredibly useful purpose, and she's going to be well-treated throughout this process. You should not doubt that for a second. She has to be. Well, that's right. You cannot have a Democratic race where a woman is the clear front-runner, probably the nominee, and then a Republican race with no women. No, you can't. Even if she's polling at one percent. I mean, I I was thinking they could do this, uh, you know, this debate where they say, okay, you've got to have a five percentage rate uh, rating in order to make it. Then I thought, no, no, because they'd have to have it so that they could allow her in. And if she's only got one percent, then then they'd have to fake it to let her in. You're right. And they've got and it's also the same with Ben Carson. Ben Carson, I don't even know. Does does he even rank in terms of ratings right now? Well, he's got no. He actually, yes, he does very well. That, that's he does quite well in polling. Uh, but the bottom line is, as the race goes on, he might not be doing so well. They cannot. Can you imagine a Republican debate where? For reasons of some, you know, no, you got no, you got to have Ben Carson, you got to have Bobby Jindal, you got to have them both for reasons that are obvious. Well, and that's fine. It's actually I actually favor, you know, letting everybody in, having great big debates. But I'm just saying that for Fiorina, I think she is especially uh, benefited by the dynamic of 2016, and so it is my view that she will be welcome. And and she's an interesting player because if she keeps on the stage for a variety of reasons, she's likely to be heard. Now. The fact of the matter is, I don't see any way for her to get anywhere near the nomination, but I could imagine that she could come out of this with some traction, with some some advancement politically, and that might take her toward a cabinet position in a Republican administration. It might. I think she'd have to do very, very well, and I'm not seeing that happening, but it might get her into some vice presidential speculation. Uh, or it might get her shown on, uh, you know, Fox Biz. I, 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 yeah, she could definitely get a Fox gig. She's, um, she's, she says all the right things. She's a um, little bit of a bitch, and she's, she's, she's very, very bright, and uh, she definitely could get a gig. Let's talk about real candidates. Um, or, or, or are we, if we mention Marco Rubio, is he a real candidate? Oh, yeah. is, is he the real candidate because he's so attractive, and he's the first one who gave a real, real speech? Well, in fairness, nobody pays attention, but Bush actually gives real speeches relatively often. It's just that, that they don't excite anyone. Well, uh, yeah, but that's it, my point. I mean, Rubio gave a speech that was exciting. It was worthy of paying attention to. And now here's the deal on Rubio, and it's a big deal. This is not to be underestimated. I, it, it always takes most of the media several weeks to catch up with what's actually happening in the race. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, Rubio appears to be the first candidate to announce, get his bump, and keep his bump, i.e., he is continuing to hold some strikingly good poll numbers nationally, 
and is starting to so, show some traction in Iowa and New Hampshire. This is a big deal. He is, has not displaced Scott Walker as the presumed alternative to Bush at the top of the race, but he's up there. In fact, there's a new NBC poll that has Bush in first place nationally, Rubio in second, Walker in third. That's a real reshuffling, and I think that, that while it's my sense Walker's always going to remain in the running, Bush will always remain in the running. Uh, Rubio looks to be elbowing his way into that higher tier. So, yes, I think he's a, at this point at least, I think he's serious, and I think it's very interesting. I, I think it is, well too. I think, I think he's somebody to watch. I think he's charismatic, and I think he appeals to young voters, maybe not the same young voters who are going to vote for Rand Paul, but they're always going to vote for a Paul. But I think he appeals to young voters. I think he has a narrative. I think he seems to have vision, and he seems to have hope. And I don't see a lot of hope coming from Scott Walker, and I no. see no hope coming from Ted Cruz. No. In fact, I think your point is well taken. Uh, the, by and large, this Republican field is a great big bummer. You know, it's sort of like they, they aren't very happy about anything, and they're, they're not presenting anything even minimally akin to what you might refer to as a Reagan-esque vision for the future, or even, dare we say it, a George W. Bush compassionate conservative vision. And and that's key for whoever gets the nomination. Yeah. I mean, what you want, if I'm the Republicans, what I want to put up against Hillary Clinton is somebody who appears to be a real alternative. And a real alternative, of course, has to meet all of the competency standards, has to meet all of the, you know, baseline experience standards. But then where you want to distinguish is in the area of vision, is in the area of style. And, and I think it's very important to, to kind of look back to 2000. The reason that George W. Bush did as well as he did and frankly, you know, he still lost. You know, Al Gore got more votes nationally. But George W. Bush was very successful, very credible candidate because people weren't that scared of him. Now, yeah. history altered a lot of that. But in 2000, he looked to be a relatively moderate, relatively, you know, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to overplay it, but he seemed like he wouldn't go to the extremes of the Republican Party on a lot of issues, and, and thus was, was a presentable alternative. I don't know that the Republicans have anybody at this point, except perhaps Rubio, who I, I would think of describing in that way. No, there's Rubio and there's Jeb Bush. I think that's it. Well, then there's Chris Christie, and we don't even know if he's going to run. He's got so many problems right now. <laughs> well, the best thing about him is forget about the problems in New Jersey. He has just said... He wants to run for president on the bold promise that he's going to make you work several more years before you can get your Social Security. Yeah, that's really going to go down well with everybody. <laughs> well, can you imagine if you're like a, if you're like a truck driver or a, a home health care worker in Iowa 
you happen to be perhaps an evangelical conservative, so you vote in the Republican caucuses. And, and here's this guy from New Jersey, who you probably didn't find much in common with anyway, coming in and saying, by the way, you'll be working till you're 67. Yeah, and, and that's his whole thing. So all you know about him is that he's a big guy, he's got a scandal somewhere around him, he's from New Jersey, and he wants to make you work. Okay, that's great. And, and he yeah. wants to make you work longer. And you know the. And if you know anything about politics, you know the people in New Jersey don't like him. No, and and I don't think anybody in Iowa particularly likes him either. And so, the fact of the matter is, I think Christie, if he runs, it would be shocking and sort of embarrassing. Uh, but you know, he may try, and well, that could fine. be fun. You know, Rudy Giuliani ran, and that was shocking and embarrassing. That and so. that it was it was great. And look, we're yeah. going to take a quick break. When we continue, uh, we may take a couple of calls because there are people who want to weigh in on this. And we may even get to the Democrats. They are they're more interesting than you say. Oh, well, <laughs> I wait to be convinced. I'm looking forward to that. We're talking with John Nichols, who writes about politics for The Nation magazine as its Washington correspondent. I'm Victoria Jones. Stay with us. I'm in for Leslie Marshall all day today and tomorrow. Leslie Marshall, The Simple Truth in a Complicated World, 888-6-LESLIE. Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall this afternoon and also tomorrow. We're talking politics with John Nichols, who else? Pioneering political blogger who writes about politics for The Nation magazine as its Washington correspondent. Talking about the Republican field, may get to the Democratic field. John, I want to get the listeners involved here. They have views, and we're going to go right to Mickey in Georgia. Hi, Mickey. What are you thinking? Hey, how you doing? Good. I think that uh, Jeb Bush is probably going to end up coming out on top. Maybe all the other candidates are like small social parties with, with some followers. But, you know, the financial backing, Jeb Bush is most likely going to be the most popular overall. You think he's going to be able to tap into that money? What do you think, John? There's no question of it. In fact, um, I, look, I'm not saying Bush will be the nominee. He could stumble. But the, the structural advantages are all his. Uh, he is talking about raising as much as $100 million just in this quarter and, you know, easily getting toward that uh, level that Mitt Romney reached of a billion dollars, maybe more than a billion dollars spent in 2012. So Bush is a money man. There's no doubt of that. And the way that Reince Priebus has restructured the Republican debate and primary process is very favorable to a moneyed candidate, because these primaries are going to come very quickly. They're going to come in a structure that is going to require immense amounts of resources. And so the idea that somebody could do a grassroots campaign, kind of you know, live off the land uh, state to state, 
is is unlikely. Well, they don't want really that. Th- thank you very, very much, Mickey. They don't want that, uh, and that, that's why Reince has done it like that. He wants to uh, cut that out. So yep. what what and when is Jeb Bush waiting for? And as regards announcement? Yeah. As regards, yeah, announcement. I, I, I will tell you exactly what he's waiting for. I think he's waiting to bank an unimaginable amount of money. And Cash. once that is clearly the case, then to step in as uh, something more than just a, a candidate, step in as a, you know a, an entity that is very, very hard to displace. I think one of the things he really wants to do is prove his fundraising credentials up front very early on so that the outside players, this would be your Sheldon Adelson's, the Koch brothers and others, will say, you know, look, we're, just, we're not going to wade in on behalf of anybody else uh, because we don't want to have that fight. And uh, he knows that he's unlikely to be their candidate in the primaries. Right. He's acceptable to them in November, but he's unlikely in the primaries. I think he wants to have enough money in the bank so he doesn't face that kind of threat. Is he raising from the Mitt Romney base right now? Yeah, and that's that's why they pushed Romney out. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but there's also... Has, and Romney is still crying about that, you know. Oh, uh, whining all over the place. Whining but, everywhere. But I, I'm talking about Mitt, not Ann. I don't know about her. But, oh, she's uh, whining louder. Well, all I can tell you is this. Uh, you know, they make movies about the meeting that Bush and Romney had, you know, a while back. And then the, there so later, Romney's out of the race. It was very, very clear that that Bush communicated that the Bush machine is on the march and doesn't want people in its way. I think people should be conscious of that. The Bush machine is a powerful operation with a lot of professionals associated with it. These are big elbows, rough players, and I think a lot of the media covers Bush the wrong way. They imagine that because he isn't all that inspiring, that somehow he doesn't have any weight to throw around. The fact is, they've got quite an operation, and my sense is that it is being pulled into place as we as we speak. So Bush Clinton then is what you're thinking? <laughs> I, I I hope not. <laughs> well, I mean, what else? Bush O'Malley, really? No, no. What I'm saying is, I'm not. It's not to stick with it. It's just to say, boy, if that's where we end up, right? That that our race is Bush Clinton. Which is the like? I think that's a very good bet, to be honest. But truthfully, then you know we have become a country where uh, we clearly have two names that generate candidates basically every cycle. Well, and I mean, it, it, we've done helpful. it to ourselves, then, haven't we? Yeah. No. Yeah, well, and I think that we we have to use the W, the capital W, on we for you and me because it's all of us, particularly many of us that cover politics. Um, there's a default position, an easy position in politics to go to that, which you know. Uh, I'm not blaming you particularly, or even me particularly, but to just say that even our media uh, tends to be fascinated with frontrunners and fascinated with uh, big players. And so I think we could end up with a Bush-Clinton. I think we could, too. I, I just don't think that's very healthy. I, I don't think it's healthy at all. And unfortunately, we're out of time. But uh, but we we make it about the horse race. We don't make it about the substance. And that's on us. It was on us last time. And I want to thank you very much, John Nichols. I appreciate your time. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you. We will continue. Much more coming up shortly. I'm Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall today on The Leslie Marshall Show. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. I'm Victoria Jones, in for Leslie Marshall today on the Leslie Marshall Show. Delighted to be with you. And we're going to talk, we're going to talk terrorism. If it was terrorism, which clearly it was, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the shooting at a Texas cartoon contest featuring images of the Muslim prophet Muhammad and ISIS taking responsibility today for the attack. Whether or not ISIS, in fact, was responsible or not, they took responsibility for the attack and uh, promised more. So thank you very much for that, ISIS. We're joined by Bob Doherty, the Intelligence and Counterintelligence Director at Counterterrorism Watch, which is a U.S. defense contracting firm specializing in intelligence, counterterrorism, and special operations training. Bob's worked for the past 25 years as an operations officer for the CIA with deep operational experience in the U.S., Europe, Central America, South America, and the Middle East. Bob, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Victoria. I have a huge, huge inclination to call you Doherty. <laughs> That's the old Gaelic version of the name, so feel free. I won't do it. Uh, well, I might by mistake, but it's just that's my it's my instinct, and you can hear why. I just it's very hard for me not to, but I won't. Um, so. So ISIS is claiming responsibility for the two men, Elton Simpson and Nadia Sufi, who shot up um, a secure, an unarmed security officer outside this ex- deliberately provocative cartoon contest being held in a Dallas suburb on Sunday um, by Pamela Geller's outfit. Um, do we think that ISIS, in fact, had anything to do with this? Well, you know, a lot of information still needs to come in, uh, Victoria. But obviously, you know, these guys are probably not directly connected to, to Islamic State. Um, doesn't look like they traveled overseas to fight or that they received any training. However, that's still yet to be determined. But what they probably fall into is one of the three categories that I kind of comprise as the main threats here in the U.S. and in Western countries. And those three categories are the departed the returned, and the inspired, with these two guys probably falling in the inspired category. And what do I mean by that? The inspired category are individuals who live in Western countries. Some of them may be converts to Islam. Some of, some of them may be uh, first or second or third generation Muslim immigrants to those countries. They have never traveled overseas to fight for a terrorist group like uh, the Islamic State or al-Qaeda. 
yet they have self-radicalized in their, in their adopted countries or in their homelands. They have gathered into groups of one, two, or three, or four, or singletons, and they have decided to carry out or try to carry out violent actions. I would, I would base a bet, and my professional assessment is, these two guys, uh, Simpson and Sophie from Phoenix, Arizona, are the inspired category. In other words, we already know that Simpson was looking at that Islamic State blogs and websites uh, on, his, on the Internet. So there's plenty of messaging out there and propaganda from the Islamic State to inspire individuals like this, to give them the radical ideology that fuels uh, the Islamic State, and then to tell them what targets to attack and how to attack them. So, now, do you count, because you didn't include lone wolf, and, and, and that's, some, that's a, a term that is uh, bandied around a lot. Do you include lone wolf as a subcategory of inspired? Yeah, yeah, I would. And I actually like Brian uh, Michael Jenkins from Rand Corporation's term of stray dogs, because I think lone wolf and gives too much credit to these guys. Yeah, and, wolves uh, are like, okay, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, stray mutts or, or they're just thugs and criminals is what they are. We should call it what it is. Yeah, I would include that in the in the inspired category. Because they, you know, haven't, have, they haven't gone anywhere and they haven't returned. Although, although Elton Simpson wanted to, according to these 1,500 hours of tapes that we have of him talking to this FBI informant, um, he talked quite openly about wanting to go and fight. Right. He apparently tried to travel to Somalia in 2011, probably to fight for al-Shabaab, which is, you know, uh, an Islamic extremist group affiliated with al-Qaeda that has now also sworn allegiance to the Islamic State. So, again, it's, it's, it's hard because in all three of these categories, we have Americans uh, in the U.S. We have people certainly that have departed. Uh, DNI Clapper said there's 200 plus Americans that have left the homeland, including females, by the way, have gone overseas to fight for the Islamic State or serve the. Well, Islamic yeah, State. Are the females fighting, or are they? Do they get there and end up breeding? Yeah, unfortunately, Victoria, that's what they they end up doing. They end up being virtually sex slaves, work slaves. It's quite a horrible existence, and yeah. we know that because some of them have have been able to reach back out to their families and tell about the conditions, you know, and, and plead and beg to try to get to get out of the situation we is. Uh, the two the two females from Austria who went to join Islamic State, uh, converts to Islam, have reportedly been raped over 200 times each. So it's a horrific situation Horrendous. for females that go over there. And actually, most people that travel over there, most of the foreign fighters, they get killed pretty quickly. Or they get ground up in this in this massive organization, this pseudo state that is the Islamic State now. Yeah, well, then I mean, they're not going to be treated as Joan of Arc. That they're not going to be seen as visionary leaders or anything like that because the women are not valued in this particular organization. I heard a read a fascinating quotation. We're going slightly off topic, but this is very interesting. Um, of um, a description for for women as part of the recruitment, which was yes, yes, you do have to be completely veiled, but look at it like this. What you are, and yes, you are in the background, but what you are is, in fact, you are the equivalent of the director of a film. Yeah, and this is the appeal, and what we fail to understand here is how slick and professional the Islamic State 
media messaging, social media messaging and propaganda campaign is. It is highly effective. It would be the you know epitome of anything that Madison Avenue or Western yeah. marketing. I mean, how clever is out. that? You're the director of the film. You're behind the cameras, directing right. what goes on. I mean, what rubbish is that? But how attractive rubbish. is that to, to a young woman who's disaffected and whose life is crap? I can. Oh, I can be the director of the film, and they promised me this, and they promised me that. And they're being successful in appealing to these young males and females to come over there. And, you know, once they get over there, of course, the harsh reality hits them in the face. And that's the real problem we face with our Western sons and daughters that are, that are being enticed and seduced into this sort of uh, fake reality. Well, and we're not, we're not combating it. I know that efforts are being made, extremely ineffectual efforts. There are some individuals who I've read about, and I've seen a couple of their videos, who are on their own doing incredibly good work. There's one English guy whose name I can't remember, um, who's now, uh, who was doing it on his own. I'm, you'll know who he is, I'm sure. Um, uh, just, an, uh, just a regular English Muslim guy who started making a video, made a video, and then started making more videos um, just aimed at kids saying, you know, this is all rubbish. And right. and um, and th- they started to work on the kids. That the kids started to go, oh yeah, it is rubbish. Actually, I don't want to join. So they start yeah, to show them in the take schools. A effort on that part, and unfortunately, Victoria, our governments are not good at that. I think as Western liberal democracies, we're not comfortable with putting out positive propaganda, as it were, or positive messaging. We're not, we're not good at covert influence type of activities. It, it smacks us as being unethical or wrong. But that's the, the, exactly the type of campaign that we need to counter, again, this very slick, well-run propaganda and social media machine that is just killing us in terms of being able to recruit our young youth away to join this horrible cause and to go and carry out all these atrocities and crime in the name of what is a very beautiful and compassionate religion, which just adds the final ironic twist to this whole thing. Well, and of course, that's exactly the opposite of what Pamela Geller and uh, uh, Wilders were, were saying, uh, I think it's Geert Wilders, uh, were saying at the event on, on Sunday that got shot up by these two men. We're going to take um, a very quick break. And when we continue, we're going to talk some more about this shooting and, uh, and, and about what is going on um, with ISIS, uh, with possible radicalization right here in the United States, whether it is something that we should be concerned about. As we talk with Bob Doherty, Intelligence and Counterintelligence Director at Counterterrorism Watch, I'm Victoria Jones, in for Leslie Marshall on The Leslie Marshall Show. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. Great song. I actually don't want to talk now. 
Now I don't want to talk, and I always want to talk. Now I just want to listen to the Congos. But I'm going to talk because I'm Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall on the Leslie Marshall Show today and tomorrow. And we're talking ISIS or IS or Islamic State or ISIL. Depends what your particular penchant is. I'm talking with Bob Doherty, Intelligence and Counterintelligence Director at Counterterrorism Watch. And we're talking about it, of course, because of the shooting at the deliberately provocative cartoon contest um, of uh, showing images of the Muslim prophet Muhammad. Why was it deliberately provocative? Because even for mainstream Muslims, any physical depiction of the prophet Muhammad, even a respectful one, is considered blasphemous. It just is. And... uh, Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to freak out, but it is considered blasphemous, and uh, they knew perfectly well. And and this, there's a very interesting interview, and I think it's on Charlie Rose tonight. Um, There are some of the uh, writers and editors from Charlie Hebdo magazine in uh, Paris are talking, and they're saying that this contest is nothing like what they do. Because some people say, oh, it's the same thing. They say, no, it's not. We draw cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad and of Jesus and of other religious figures when there's something in the news, when there's something to talk about and lampoon. We don't do it from a deliberately provocative point of view to have a contest and give away $10,000 like this. They're saying, don't, don't compare us. So that's airing later tonight. I think you'll find it very interesting. So I'm talking with Bob. Bob, I want to talk a bit more about recruitment and recruitment efforts here in the U.S. Um, Elton Simpson was a Muslim convert. He was one of the shooters who's now dead. The other is Nadia Sufi, about whom less is known. Elton Simpson did have a conviction, um, kind of a lame conviction, uh, I must say it was, Um, These recruitment efforts, I know some of it's very seductive, very slick, very clever videos made by ISIS, but a lot of these videos show some really horrendous images of beheadings and torture and burning people alive. What is the attraction of watching that kind of grotesque horror for people to be recruited? No, that's a great question, Victoria. Really, the, the core, there's three elements that form the core of ISIS's and al-Qaeda's recruitment. That is, Islam is at war with the West, and the West is repressing Muslims around the world, and we'll cite all these world events to justify that. And there's some, there's some truth, there's some kernels of truth in that. Islam, uh, the West, and, and corrupt Muslim governments are killing Muslims worldwide, and we'll show you some scenes of that. And the, the way to be a good Muslim, the only way to be a good Muslim and to purify yourself and purify your religion is to engage in this jihad or violent action. And we'll show you some triggers, some emotional triggers of Muslims being killed, women and children being killed, to cause you to become enraged and follow the true path as we define it of this religion and take action. So those are really the core elements that we go through and like the training course that we do at CQ Watch on ISIS and radicalization. And that has appeal to some of this very slim minority of the youth, the disaffected youth in the Western countries who are looking for something in their lives. They're looking to belong to something bigger to them. They're looking to be part of a cause. They're looking for adventure and action. Hey, you're going to give me a gun and allow me to go kill people 
in Syria and Iraq, and I can collect money and war booty and have a wife, and no one really tells me what to do, where do I sign up? So it's almost like this video game generation that we've raised is feeding into this. Again, it's very small numbers that we're talking about here, very small percentages. But that, in essence, in a nutshell, is what is happening in terms of the recruitment. So it's appealing to a very small percentage, and and that percentage is persuaded by this definition of what's in the Quran, and they don't go back to check that, oh, it doesn't say that. Oh, you're not allowed to burn people alive. Absolutely right, Victoria. These guys, more, more and a far large percentage of them are very ignorant of their own religion, whether they're converts or they were born Muslims. And they're being told and indoctrinated into this very radical form of Islam called Salafism by these, by these elder people, these elder operatives, who are basically manipulating them and using mind control and manipulation and all the truest sense to indoctrinate these young kids. It's much the same pattern as someone joining a criminal gang, although a criminal gang is not going to go out and and commit mar- and commit the uh, you know martyrdom acts. Uh, there's not many gangs that do that. So it's a lot of the same processes of wanting to belong to a family, wanting to belong to a cause higher than themselves. But there's a lot of ignorance that goes with it. So the more we can do to combat this, education, training, awareness, those are the three pillars that I really see here in the West and the U.S. that we can use. Educate people about what real Islam is. Educate the youth about what real Islam is. Educate them about the threat from these groups and how they're recruiting people. We do that at CQ Watch through the training courses that we give. Um, we raise that. We give training to law enforcement and public sector and private uh, civilians. There's also organizations out there, for example, InfraGuard is a nonprofit organization run by the FBI, which is a partnership between private sector, corporate America, private businesses, and the federal government as an exchange of ideas and information about what's going on out there in terms of security threats and terrorism threats to our American economy and business and infrastructure. And it's a great forum for getting access to anyone can join who's a business person or has a business and is an American. Um, So these types of groups all help raise awareness, help raise our understanding of what is really going on in the issues. The more we can do that, educate and raise awareness in people, the better chance we're going to have to ultimately combat this threat. Bob, I want to thank you for coming on. It it sounds like a lot of work, and it sounds like ISIS's work is easier, but it's got to be done. I want to thank you very much for being on with us this afternoon. Thank you so much. I'm Victoria Jones. In for Leslie Marshall, we will continue. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall today. Leslie has earned, yes, with sweat, a few days off. I will be in again tomorrow for her. We wanted to talk immigration today. Hillary Clinton, speaking in Nevada, is uh, saying that uh, a true fix 
to the nation's immigration system would need to include a, quote, full and equal path to citizenship, and the nation shouldn't settle for proposals that would provide hardworking people with a, quote, second-class status. And this is the furthest that Hillary Clinton has gone on this issue. She has picked today, Cinco de Mayo, to say this. And we're delighted to be joined by Anastasia Tonello, the American Immigration Lawyer Association's National Treasurer. Um, Anastasia Tonello is managing partner of Laura Devine Attorneys in New York and is also a partner of Laura Devine Solicitors in London. Anastasia, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. You're not a barrister then? Not a, not a barrister, just a solicitor and attorney. Well, it's probably a good thing because being a barrister <laughs> is pretty stressful. I'm, I won't be wearing a wig. Won't be wearing a wig, no. Well, you don't have to on, on this show. It's not compulsory. <laughs> I wear a wig, you know, for the show, a barrister's wig, but nobody knows. So <laughs> um, let's, let's talk about what's going on um, with, with Hillary Clinton's remarks and whether this is, in fact, a significant move on immigration, what she's saying today? What do you think? I think it is. I mean, we've seen already that she's, um, she's come out to say that she supports President Obama's executive order granting temporary legal protection to those who would otherwise be eligible under the DREAM Act, which was a big move. And kind of you know, what she's, she's saying in, in, this, in this statement is really far and away more more um i guess in line with with what our immigration system needs than what her what the what the other candidates are saying uh it 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 seems to me that the the republicans and and even the other the democrats are going to need to rally and and try to address this issue in a real way which we haven't really seen so far yeah, it, it hasn't been a, a big uh, subject for the Democrats so far, partly because I mean, only Bernie Sanders has, uh, has really uh, announced so far. She also, during the 2008 primaries, Clinton was tripped up um, on immigration. She initially sort of hummed and hawed and didn't wouldn't yeah. say what she was doing. Then she said that um, immigrants living in the U.S. illegally should not be able to get driver's licenses. Now, last month, her campaign said that she now supports state policies that allow driver's licenses under those circumstances. So, again, she has changed. She has, and I, I, you, know, you want to encourage change, especially when it's in the right direction. Unfortunately, a lot of the immigration talk that we've seen so far from the other candidates has been in the wrong direction. So uh, the fact that you know, we're, we're, I can hope that she's kind of looked into the issue more. She's got a, a more educated view on the issue, and and now sees the benefit of, of the driver's license for undocumented. With well, meantime, we've got a number of other issues going on with immigration that that would clearly uh, be she would impact. President Obama, back in November, um, initiated uh, some executive orders, um, uh, and they're looming large on the immigration debate. Um, basically, well, he's already got in place uh, an order that has. Well, he has, he's expanded a program protecting young immigrants from deportation if they were brought to the U.S. illegally as children. 
And then he's got another provision that extends deportation protections to parents of U.S. citizens and permanent residents who have been in the country for several years. And um, now Republican presidential candidates have said they're going to overturn them, but 26 states, including Nevada, where Hillary Clinton is today, they've sued to block Obama's immigration orders. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals heard arguments on the challenges just a couple of weeks ago. We're waiting for a ruling on that. Do you have any sense, um, I'm sure you've been following it closely, of which way they might be leaning and what you think is going to happen on this? Well, the the stay on the injunction, and we expect to hear this month, if not sooner, um, we hope, we, judging from the, the last uh, the last uh, executive action in, in 2012, when that was challenged, that was recently that recently lost on the merits, where it can only be expected that the same thing will happen with with this with the expanded DACA and with DAPA. It's the you know, in, in my opinion, I think the argument that the the states put forward is is weak. The why kind of, why is it weak? The, I mean, the, the, it was based on the um, the extra expense to the states for issuing driver's license and, and kind of administrative expenses for the state. It ignores all of the economic benefits and actually increase in tax revenue and revenue for the states, giving people authorization to work who are who are already here. So, um, you know, the, the 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 benefits far outweigh. Uh, any extra administrative burdens on a state. Uh, it's, it, it's common sense in kind of the legal perspective, administrative actions, executive actions are legal, and every president uh, in the last two centuries has, has used this power. So I, I, I hope, I mean, this is, this is playing politics, and that will come out, that, that that's all that this is, that this isn't really... Um, the legal issue is not a strong one. Well, I mean, I think it's a question of how you define executive, you know, executive orders, and and the Republicans are saying mm. that this is a a vast expansion by President Obama to emperor uh, status of executive orders. Um, but in the meantime, we're talking about what four or five million people whose lives are. Are they on hold, or, or are some of them being deported? What is happening to these people? Well, that's a really good point, and in fact, um, both. I mean, the, until the this has made its way through the courts, the those that would benefit under expanded DACA and DAPA are still removable. They're, they're, they're not subject to any deferred action um, automatically. And then I think even worse, um, the, the case of, of the current DACA applicants, and that kind of moving its way through the courts, and those cases aren't getting dealt with. So people who were issued work permits under the original DACA are finding that their applications aren't getting adjudicated or approved um, because, of, again, this kind of playing politics. With, with people's lives. So there, there are a lot of people in limbo, and then some people who might be saved under this executive action are literally having to leave. 
They, they are, and, and actually, I mean, it kind of always brings us back to, to the fact that this is a temporary solution anyway. You know, this is deferred action. There's nothing new about deferred action. This has been going on much longer than, than the executive order. Um, it's always been a relief available under the immigration rules in, in, in court. So the fact that... Um, that's that's what this is. It's temporary. There's no permanent fix. The, the, as we see, the Republican candidates are coming out saying they're going to reverse the executive yes. orders. And, yes, they are. And so you you kind of really do have this tug. Like yes, people are in limbo now, but it's 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 even limbo if when this this works its way through because it's still deferred action. It's not a status. And and you know when you talk about. Uh, a permanent solution, then you're talking about law. And it simply has not been possible. I mean, the Senate passed a law, um, a bipartisan law. It was semi-bipartisan, really, which presidential candidate Marco Rubio was part of the gang of eight that put that together, though he distanced himself from it later when it became expedient. Nevertheless, it passed, but it got nowhere in the Senate, as did nothing else. And right now, nothing else is going to get anywhere in the in the house, and right now nothing else is going to get anywhere in the house. So, except possibly tougher border security. So, how do you see any kind of anything permanent that would benefit undocumented immigrants coming about? Well, we we can hope that the demographics of an election can come from come into play. That you know, we see that the those those with immigrant backgrounds, those with immigrant parents, those who were immigrants themselves, are making up a large proportion of the voting population. Uh, do candidates want to alienate that population, or do they want to attract them? We see that Hillary has a wide margin over the the top contenders. Um, Almost a two to three margin over Bush, uh, if if he if he puts his name in even, and that shows you something that the um, the potentially the the need for votes will of of for an election could potentially find its way into Congress and get us get us a bill. We'll continue in just a moment more with Anastasia Tonello, the American Immigration Lawyers Association's national treasurer coming up. Your calls also at 1-888-6-LESLIE. I'm Victoria Jones, in for Leslie Marshall. Stay with us. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. I'm Victoria Jones, and for Leslie Marshall today and tomorrow, she's taking a few days off, and very well earned it is too. I'm joined by Anastasia Tonello, the American Immigration Lawyer Association's national treasurer. We're talking immigration with you at one eight 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 six Leslie. Anastasia, we're going to take a call. We've got Paul from Washington on the line. Hi, Paul. Hello, Victoria. Hey. Hello, Anastasia. 
you there? Yes. Okay. Uh, here's a question for you. The state of Oregon has uh, a system in which no undocumented uh, immigrants uh, are able to get a driver's license, but that allows them to uh, have automatic voter registration when you, if you're a licensed driver, that is, if when you turn 18, you're automatically registered to vote. And now, my myself, being that I am an unsighted person, have not driven a car or had a driver's license in 38 years, and I know that it's not the end of the world. So, if I had a choice to make between having everyone who was a driver's who uh, to be automatically registered to vote, or having to do uh, having a few uh, undocumented immigrants not have a driver's license, I'm for everyone voting, because I think we make more headway towards progressive causes that way. And I know myself that even though it's a bit inconvenient, it's not the end of the world not to have a driver's license. No, we can do both. Okay, how do we get there? And I realize just because a state doesn't allow you, uh, an undocumented immigrant, to have a driver's license doesn't mean they're automatically going to register everyone to vote. But you see where I'm going. I, I certainly see where you're going, and it seems to me that there could be two forms of registration established, couldn't there? Yes, that would, that would be a good idea, too, because certainly I wouldn't automatically be registered to vote just because I had a driver's license if I lived in the state of Oregon, but I would be registered to vote by having to, to well, even my state ID doesn't necessarily, you'd have to get a state ID uh, this is a good point now that we're talking about it. I wouldn't even necessarily fall under the automatically registered to vote in Oregon because anybody well, and, can get a state ID, I not, suppose. Let's not forget that undocumented um, people can't, aren't eligible to vote in federal elections. So there, there could be a potential conflict there as well. No, I understand that. But I'm, what I'm looking at is some way to get people to – the way – the state of Oregon is, at least in their system, what they've been able to accomplish is that by not allowing undocumented uh, immigrants to get a driver's license, at least under their system, the people who do get a driver's license are automatically registered to vote. That's an upside I, that I see to it. Honestly, it doesn't make any difference to me. As I said, I don't drive a car, and I, I'm frankly, I'm glad I don't drive a car anymore. When I did drive, it was the most... Uh, hair-raising, I, I couldn't stand, didn't like it. <laughs> I was glad when they said you don't see well enough to drive a car anymore. Well, I mean, the, the whole driver's license thing, it's certainly very complicated. And I think you, you raised some very good and complex points, Paul, and uh, I think we, we, we'd have to get into a whole Oregon thing to sort it out. So thank you very much for, you. for calling us today. We appreciate it very much indeed. Thank you. Um, and, and Anastasia, I wanted to, to bring in another issue in, in the very few minutes we have left, which is the, the question that's um, been ongoing of unaccompanied minors coming into the country and the, the, the processing of them once they come here without lawyers and lawsuits that are going through the courts to try to get them lawyers um, so that they can be represented uh, in their dealings with judges, because at the moment, th my understanding is that the vast majority of these children, some of them very young children, do not have and are not entitled to lawyers to represent them going up against the United States of America, and that those who do not have lawyers um, inevitably lose, 
and that those who do have lawyers, the statistics are quite different, and the, the, some of them win. Well, it, it's actually staggering, the, the the results of having a, a lawyer represent the unaccompanied minors, and actually anyone in an immigration proceeding, there's no right to, to counsel. So having a qualified lawyer is, is going to help extremely uh, get someone their, their proper representation. And there's Unfortunately, there's not a lot um, of, of 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 work that we we can do um, without really addressing like the main the, the right to counsel in, in that address or in that uh, in that issue. But there there are there there are lawsuits right now before the courts to try to force them to allow these children to to have lawyers, uh, my understanding is that, you know, that they're in the middle of it. It's just astonishing to me that in this country where I thought you had the right to an attorney, if you're a child and you don't speak the language and you're completely powerless and helpless, you don't have the right to an attorney. Well, it's ab- it absolutely is shocking. I mean, there, we've seen the family detention centers uh, at the border that have conditions that you wouldn't you wouldn't expect in a third world country, let alone the, the United States. And lawyers have been going down and volunteering their time and services, uh, really kind of stepping up to the plate to make sure that, that these children are represented. If they're moved to cities, here in New York City we have a juvenile docket with uh, pro bono attorneys who will come and represent uh, minors that don't have uh, either you know, the funds or the language abilities, the, the means to, to get counsel. But nevertheless, the vast majority of them still don't have counsel and they're just being deported. Or, I mean, yeah, actually, sometimes even worse and more tragic is they're hiring notarios or uh, other advisors, and I put that in quotes, who, who aren't qualified and aren't um, able to adequately represent them. And that's really at the heart of, of, of the Supreme Court issue that were that's that's being heard of of whether or not ineffective assistance of counsel um, is is a grounds. For, so they're being for ripped off, in fact. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's even. Oh my gosh, this, this is just an absolute nightmare. Wow, wow. So well, we don't know what's going to happen with the executive orders. We've got children either not being represented or being ripped off. We've got four to five million people living in limbo or being deported while we're waiting to hear what the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is going to do. Um, in the one minute we've got left, do you have any good news for me? <laughs> well, the immigration is coming to front and center. Hillary Clinton's announcement today is, is, is exciting. It's the fact that she's bringing it to to the, the campaign, and it's going to force the issue from the other candidates. I think you're right. I think it will force the issue from the other candidates. I think it's going to force the Republicans to say where they stand. Um, and uh, some of them may have to soften. And we've already heard some very interesting statements from Jeb Bush that have separated him from the rest of the pack. Mm. And even uh, we've seen Marco Rubio kind of sidestep, and depending who his audience is and what language he's, he's speaking in, um, the comments are, are much softer on immigration. So that's so... There is hope. I, I, I wanted to end on hope, so I, I think it's important. Anastasia Tonello, the American Immigration Lawyers Association's national treasurer, thank you very much for coming on with me. I appreciate it. Thank you.
Thank you. We're out of time for today. I will be back tomorrow. Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall.